What's up everybody, I'm Sean Goldfad from Coefficient Labs and on this episode of Demo Day, we'll be interviewing Derek Norton, the founder and managing partner at Water Tower Ventures. What we tend to stay away from and where the big red flag is, is someone who's struggling to come up with an idea mm. and they kind of baked something up and they think this could be a good idea, more from the standpoint of they want to do a startup. On today's show, Derek talks about what it means to work with people that you're real close with the truth about transitioning from an entrepreneur to a venture capitalist and why in-person events are one of the most important things that both founders and VCs can be doing in a post-pandemic world. Without further ado, let's get into Demo Day. Derek, welcome to Demo Day. Thank you so much for joining us today. So happy to be here. We've been trying to do this for a while, so yeah, we it's good really... to finally make it happen and no traffic on the way from uh, our office and uh, down to your office. So. That's how you know it's going to be a good day. I think it's going to be different on the way back, but we'll see. Uh, I, I hope not. I hope not, but Same I think you're here. right. <laughs> <laughs> so Derek, I always start the podcast off with a question around the why. And you know, you're really interesting uh, guest on the show because you've been in the venture ecosystem now for over two decades, yep. 20 plus years. And for a lot of the new up and comers that we're going to be, you know, talking about uh, in a little bit, someone that's been in the same sort of industry for decades, you've got to be driven by a why or a reason that you enjoy being with founders, that you enjoy supporting entrepreneurs. And I'm curious, you know, you could do anything. Why be a venture capitalist? Why invest in startups? From a young age, I always wanted to, as I used to say, own my own business. I think we now say, uh, do a startup. And I kind of like own my own business. And I, I think pe maybe people had that lens, it would be a little different. So I had that passion and I did that. I, I graduated from USC and I immediately founded my first company. And I've gone on to found four successful companies. And I think of Water Tower Ventures as my fifth startup. And, and my partner, Jeremy Milken, has founded six companies and so between us, that is six one being Water Tower Ventures. So we we think of ourselves as a startup. I, I don't ever say, and, and we we talk a lot about this internally. Is we're a startup just like the people we invest mm -hmm. in. We have the same challenges. We raise money. We do very very similar things, if not exactly similar things, in doing so. I just never want to lose that edge, that startup mentality. And I think at this point, it's so ingrained yeah. of having done it for so long. Um, you know, I often think about. You hear that advice from older people when you are a younger person, right? Which is find something you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Okay, great. <laughs> How do I find that? And, uh, you know, I'm fortunate to feel like I've found that and, and it feels that way. And I think, you know, if we could maybe extract how you go about that journey of discovery to get to that place, yeah. boy, it'd help a lot of people yeah. get, get to where it is. Well, so knowing that you did go to school at USC, maybe take us a little bit even before that. Did you grow up in Los Angeles? Where, where did you grow up? What was early life like for you? Yeah. So uh, fourth generation Angelino wow. on my dad's side, an Italian immigrant, uh, mother, uh, but always been in LA, um, always wanted to go to USC from a young age. And go so, Trojans. Yeah, go Trojans for sure. And and we're looking good this year. Yeah, looking really yeah, good. Yeah, we're looking really good. Um, so it was always just a part of my DNA. It was, I knew where I was gonna go to school and I knew I wanted to own my own company, I like to, I like to call it. And so I kind of, you know, fell into that journey. And I would say I'm still a very passionate Angelino and uh, passionate about what's going on here, passionate about the problems that we're facing here and how we can go about fixing those problems because I have seen uh, Los Angeles ebb and flow to go from being not great to great and then again to not great and, and, and finding that. And I would say it's an entrepreneurial city. It's Definitely. an entrepreneurial culture that is here. And we have some incredible industries. Uh, we have some incredible world-class universities that surround us here. And as a result of that, I think it's just in our DNA. Now, you mentioned that, you know, LA is a very entrepreneurial city. And I also grew up not too far down in Manhattan Beach. So, you know, 30 plus years in Los Angeles. But I feel like when I moved up into Santa Monica area around 2012, 2013, that's when like the Silicon Beach and like there, it felt like entrepreneurialism in LA, you know, really like started in the last 10, 12, 15 years. But when you were in college, 
being an entrepreneur or being a, a business owner, as you mentioned, to my knowledge, that wasn't what most students or kids were doing. And so where did you develop that I'm going to be an entrepreneur? Were your parents entrepreneurs? Did you just hang out with friends and say, I'm going to own my own business someday? Or like, where did that come from knowing that it wasn't that typical or as typical as it is today to be a startup or an entrepreneur, right? Yeah, I disagree. Really? So I think it's always been a very entrepreneurial city. USC had the entrepreneur program as the first in the country within the business school there. And everyone that I went to school with, uh, the people in my fraternity, the people I knew, everyone wanted to start their own business. A lot of that was focused on real estate. Okay. So you, uh, SC attracts a lot from Los Angeles and a lot from Orange County. Orange County was kind of made on real estate in that regard. But let's look at the entertainment industry. It's an insanely entrepreneurial industry. It's massive and it's very akin to venture, right? So, you know, nine out of 10 films never make a dollar. Everything's a startup. Every television show, every film is a startup. Hmm, you're right. It requires outside financing, investment, all of these things. You have large platforms like studios and then you have small independent producers creators all of this so i find it to be incredibly entrepreneurial right founder-esque and that's why i speak to the dna of los angeles as being very entrepreneurial yeah. we haven't even talked about the aerospace industry which was steeped in la um and still is to a certain degree i mean they build rockets in pasadena yeah and, yes. <laughs> and a lot of technology there and so you and you had a lot of of that industry here in the 70s, 80s, 90s. Yeah. And now when you were, you know, just getting out of school, did you have a something that you could grip onto that was going to be your business or was going to be your first baby or did it how, how did that come to you or did you did you have to create it, you know, from just an idea like how how did that get started your first business? It was initially real estate that I thought that was the direction I wanted to go. And I did that for a very, very short period of time and then ended up partnering with a uh, roommate, fraternity brother, best friend. And we started a technology company that was really sort of a resale company that eventually morphed into a systems integrator. So early 90s and we were building computer networks and we were connecting people to the Internet for the first time. So we're going way, 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 way back. back in time. And I sort of fell into it now. I would imagine there's a lot of people listening that want to understand what's the trick, if there is one, to working with your best friend or your family. Um, looking back on it now, you've had many years to process how it affected your relationship for the positive or the negative, how you guys work together. What's the pros and the cons that you've seen of working with your roommate in college, your best friend or someone along that line? And um, I'm curious your point of view and if it's changed at all. I think when people sort of have opposite interests, opposite skill sets and expertise, it works really, really well, right? They complement one another. So if you can find that in a partner, it works extremely well. I like to say my partner likes to do all the things I don't do yeah. and like to do and uh -huh. vice versa. And that tends to work really, really well. So when we're evaluating a company now and it's a partnership mm -hmm. uh, and many times You've got two co-founders, you've got three co-founders. In some cases, you've got four co-founders. I think with each additional co-founder, the challenges multiply yeah. in that regard. But when we look at that kind of classic model of the two co-founders that are there, we do look for those complementary skill sets. And a lot of times that looks like a deep, deeply technical person partnered with somebody who's more on the business side, who's some a CEO who has a vision and he's brought someone in to help him execute that. Now, I don't know, you know, when you were having this first business with your your best friend, your roommate, were there ever any times that you were challenged or tested around like, oh man, like we're actually arguing with one another. We're, we're in a fight. And how did you navigate that? If, if, if I at all? think every partnership has it, right? I uh -huh. think it's no different than a marriage. You're going to have these challenges and it's how you work through those, how you navigate. I think over time though, you look at the ideas as you come into a room and I, I see it sort of this color and, and your partners maybe sees it a different shade of that color. 
together you see it in a whole different light mm. and that's where the magic happens when a partnership is really good and where those skill sets come together to make something great the first company that you started i i, I have jeffrey's technology that's but I, it. I so that was it and now how did uh digital boardwalk come into play sort of as a byproduct of that a so byproduct. as many companies will have kind of see an opportunity this was an opportunity based around technology based around the internet okay so it's an interesting story um there was a small little teeny company just starting called netscape yep netscape created the first browser mark andreessen uh, and we became their second commercial application partner. So kind of a fancy term for we were like their reseller. <laughs> okay. uh, but this is back in a time when it to launch a website was a $2 million plus endeavor. Totally. Uh, lots of custom programming, lots of, um, you know, racking your own servers, maintaining and, and making sure that those servers work, which most of the time they didn't. Uh, lots of late night phone calls with Mark Andreessen to talk about why their publishing apps and their commerce apps weren't working. And after, you know, buying a million dollars of SGI gear or, or sun gear to uh, to integrate that. So it was this opportunity. And, you know, lucky for us, we saw that opportunity early and kind of created one of the first web services companies. What were your favorite aspects of the early days of venture that maybe aren't as present in today's world? I think it is present in today's world. And it's, it's, it's connecting with a founder where you see that passion, you see that vision, you see that big idea. And you get to you get to be a part of that and, and helping that person sort of, if you will, you know, the woo woo side of it, realize their dream. Right. Kind of thing, mm -hmm. because you've given them the money to go out and be able to do that. And so seeing that passion and then watching people execute and create and go from, you know, five guys in an office and the, the, the kitchen sink full of dishes to thousands of employees in a giant campus and, and other things like that. It's amazing. Is it difficult for you to play the coach and the investor and sort of the mentor when your natural skill set is just to jump in there and do it? And like, I, I always am interested when I meet operators that also are venture capitalists, because don't you, doesn't it hard not to want to get in the, in the middle and sort of, uh, guide or direct, um, it, it feels like uh, it's hard to do that from a distance. What, what's your experience like in kind of balancing between being that coach, mentor, and just this is how I think it should be done? Look, you, you in, in many cases, you join a board and you, you join that board because you're an investor, but your purpose is to serve that board, right? And to provide feedback. And sometimes that's critical feedback in doing so. It's not your job to be the founder. It's not mm -hmm. your job to be the CEO. It's not your job to set the vision and hire the people on the team, but to give that feedback and give that support. And so for us, I mean, my partner is an operator. He's built multiple successful businesses at scale. And um, that ex those experiences, I think, are really what help to shape mm. maybe that company as it goes forward. I think just... You know, creating an environment, and we try really hard to do this, to create a safe environment where you can ask the question that maybe you don't want to ask of your investor when things aren't going well and get that feedback and more importantly, get that assistance in solving a problem. We always say to everybody at the very, very early stages, let us know what's not working. Tell us what's wrong mm. first and let's not judge. Let's not look backwards. Let's look forward. Let's fix the problem. Let's move on. And I think together you can fix a problem if everyone's aligned much more efficiently than when you have this kind of like blame yeah. in place. What was the transition like for you from digital boardwalk into your first like venture group? Did did was it an easy transition to go from working with your buddy building a business to then, you know, kind of taking a little bit of a different approach where you're now assessing companies, you know, putting money and dollars to work? What what was that transition like for you, if anything at all? Yeah, it's massive. Right. So you go from and I, and I think and we talk about this a lot with our founders. We talk a lot about it internally with our team and all is you kind of move from being in sales on the sell side mm -hmm. to being on the buy side. And you have to navigate that uh, delicately. Right. So when I entered the business, it was 1999 and it was kind of like entering the business in 2021. You could do no wrong. Everything moved at lightning pace. There was no diligence. People were writing checks left and right. And you were kind of like a rock star because everyone wanted to come see you. And so that that jolt from being on the sell side and long sales processes, think like an enterprise mm -hmm. sale, like, you know, you're selling infrastructure to large companies. It took a long time to all of a sudden everyone's kind of beating your door down to talk to you, to get a check from you. 
you got to keep your ego in check and understand what that is. And so I would have, um, I think, navigating the past couple of years as you got out of the the lockdown pandemic and then yeah. you moved into that end of 20 into 21, where it was just, you know, didn't make any sense to a degree. And so it was beneficial to have that lens. It was beneficial that my partner had that equal lens because I worked with his family in that first fund. So it's a very long relationship. And I ended up backing him in that first fund in his first startup um, to to look back. So I'd, I'd call it semi-jarring, but then you kind of, you know, finally get your lane and understand what your purpose is and why you're supposed to be there. And then sort of not kid yourself as to why people are calling you and knocking on the door yeah. and uh, why, why you're all of a sudden so popular. What did you discover early on to be your lane or like what your specialty? Um, Obviously, there's so many different elements. There's finding and sourcing new talent. There's being able to assess deals. There's the financial and the modeling. There's the coaching. What was the part that brought you the most energy or made you feel like the most fulfilled in your early career? Well, that was a time when there was a lot of technical due diligence because things didn't work. You were sort of inventing it as you go. It's almost like, you know, the plane was taking off and you were still building it type of thing. So I had a technical background and there wasn't that many people in the business with a technical background and understanding of networks and infrastructure and connectivity. Um, I mean, we were still very, very early in this, you know, protocol called HTTP at the time. And so that was very fulfilling to be able to to diligence and see where those opportunities were. And then I I don't think we did a good job of thinking about the future, Mm. right? Because the future, you could kind of look at that lens in, in 2002 and three when Amazon was a $2 stock and, uh, and and other opportunities to see where it was going to probably go to. But that was incredibly fulfilling. And I think also, too, is being a founder and having that founder mindset that I think you either have it or you don't have mm. it. And if you do, it never leaves you. Um, it's just amazing to work with a bunch of different people. And I'd say on a closing note on that topic was the idea of how fulfilling it was to work with different companies, trying to do different things, approach them with the founder kind of from a different angle. Yeah. And it's just, it's just, uh, you know, you're, if you're a curious person and I am, it's a very fulfilling uh, experience. And so then in 2002 about that, was it in like a pull to start Water Tower Group? Was it a pull to start your next thing? Because there was kind of the time you spent with entertainment media that then moved into Water Tower Group. What what was the... So there was a transition from the fund, which we had then deployed and had some returns off of and things looked good, but the world didn't look good mm. <laughs> at that point. And, you know, people started to question the internet, at the time, much in the way people are questioning now, uh, Bitcoin and blockchain and other things in that area that we saw maybe as a result of, of 2020 and 2021 mm-hmm. that was there. And, you know, we, we had a, a long belief of where that was going to go. I formed Water Tower Group because there wasn't a lot of venture capital going on at the time. People had kind of closed up shop. I mean, it was a very, very significant downturn. NASDAQ had lost a significant amount. Most people were invested across that asset class in the public markets because that's where everything was transacting. So it was a very, I don't know if you remember it or not, but 02, 03, 04, 05, a very shaky time. Interesting. Now, I I don't want to get too off topic on, you know, you building your fund, but I'm curious, like, how does your experience from the last 10, 20 years where you've seen these cycles, how does it play into your point of view of crypto? Is it the same? Is it different? But you've kind of been through this before in some way. Uh, how has that affected your point of view on crypto? Yeah, it's it's given us a specific point of view, which was at the dawn, if you will, of the internet, on the dawn of that protocol of HTTP, Jen Dreesen was responsible for the creation of the browser to make that much more accessible for people, is they put these companies into a bucket of a dot-com or an online or an internet company. And we kind of quickly shaped a view that every business would become a dot-com or Mm. an internet uh, company that's out there. And I think we similarly have that view today is that you're not necessarily going to be a blockchain company and then a something else company. Every company will have attributes of its business on the blockchain. And we think that those attributes, that uh, transparency, shared ownership, verification, authentication, all those things are very beneficial to not just businesses, but to a society. So when you hear people talking about, you know, 
uh, Bitcoin is going to go to zero or Solana is this or Ethereum is that, do you say to yourself they're, you know, oh, they're probably right? Or do you say to yourselves like they just haven't, they haven't been in the cycle long enough to know, you know, that that it's going to come back. What's your point of view on some of these new technologies and new coins and things like that? I think it's like any other startup ecosystem when people are going after a market and redefining things. Sure, a bunch will go to zero mm-hmm. and a bunch will have wild success. But gener- or a few, I should say. But generally, you feel like the overall ecosystem like is going to keep exploding. We feel that it's a protocol and we think that the attributes are meaningful to all businesses mm. in the future and that this will be a big part of how they build their business. Okay, coming back to starting Water Tower Group, because Water Tower Group is different in some ways than Water Tower Ventures. Or it's a totally separate. Totally separate, yeah, right? Absolutely. So uh, what was Water Tower Group? What was the sort of um, beginning of that business? And you know, how is, how, how is that different than what you're doing today? It was created really as just a kind of a temporary consulting firm Okay. as we navigated through the dot-com implosion thinking that uh, with a a really firm belief, right, that the internet, that technology around online, that commerce, that all of those things were going to come back. We had a belief in media, which we had at the Fund Entertainment Media Ventures, that there was a big opportunity in that business. And, And a lot of this focused on the consumer, but also on the enterprise. And so it was really initially, it was there was not a lot of venture dollars deployed in 02, 03, 04. Very, very few. Um, and so it was meant to be that it kind of ended up creating its own success, if mm-hmm, you will. Mm-hmm. We assisted a couple of companies with accessing venture at the time, and then it it very rapidly grew into a boutique investment bank. And um, and it had a lot of success. And I, I, I sometimes say we got trapped by the success um, we had a unique model. We took, when we did have a success, a successful transaction on the fundraising side, we took a blend of cash and equity got in it. the companies that we were working with. So there was a portfolio over time that got created. We did over 200 and, yeah, I mean, up until the time I left, over 250 transactions in that business combination of M&A and fundraising. And now, you know, transitioning from Water Tower Group into Water Tower Ventures, what was kind of building within you? What what was the sort of the reason that you wanted to start this new fund? And um, one of the things that I always am interested in is what was it like for you to raise that first fund? Well, there wasn't a lot of building going on because I was kind of doing nothing. I had just grown bored of the banking business. And uh, a good friend of mine, a guy named Kevin Mayer, who at the time was at the Walt Disney Company, said, uh, you know, I think you should raise a fund. I think you need to maybe maybe explore a little reinvention uh, at this point. But, you know, and, and I'd be interested in, in backing you. Uh, and I thought I kind of pondered the idea and thought about it. And I, I went down and saw a good buddy of mine at the time, my now partner, Jeremy Milken. And I said, what do you think of this idea? And he said, I'll back you as well. And so I spent the next couple of months thinking what I wanted to do and kind of landed on the idea of starting my fifth my fifth company. And I kind of went back out to a group of what are you know very close friends and relationships and I pitched them on the idea of a venture fund and let them know that I, my plan was to build an institutionalized platform multi-generational firm that one day I would step away from and hopefully have the next group of great incredible investor and partners running that business. So there was some trust that was there. I, I had a lot of experience in the venture world. We were an investment bank focused on venture. Uh, and so I knew everyone in the ecosystem and my friends knew that and my my LPs, eventual LPs understood that. So it was um, it was a fairly, uh, fairly efficient process. It was a bunch of friends. Yeah. And uh, which put a lot of pressure on me because you don't want to lose your friend's money at that point. And so we're just now five years old. And I don't think we could have gotten to the place we are now. We're four investors. We have an investing sourcing team, all of whom are titled investor. We're on our second fund, which is 10x our first fund. Um, We could have gotten there without that prior banking experience Mm. that created that network of relationships within the venture ecosystem. You raised your first fund. And from my understanding, I always find it really fascinating that when it comes to being a founder, of course, all startups want to succeed. But in some cases, I feel like when you've gone through certain failures or you've gone through, you know, 
certain startups that didn't work out, that the learnings you took away from that is part of your narrative or your story as you go and raise your next fund. But when you're an investor and you raise money in that first fund, if you're not successful in that first fund, it's so much harder to get follow-on investment or follow-on fund afterwards. So what were the you know, what were the uh, qualities that you were looking for in those early startups that you really were, you know, banking behind that would help you get to that second fund? How did you think about succeeding in that first fund that enabled you to grow your next fund by over 10x? I had the good fortune of working with a lot of great, very talented founders, not only in a prior fund, but over basically a 15 year career of banking. And when you are raising money with somebody and you do that for a lot of companies, boy, the, the highs and the lows are incredible. And you go through some very, very dark stages with founders where, you know, you got 50 no's <laughs> and there's not many people left that you could possibly get a yes from. So, you know, seeing that resilience in people and understanding what it what they're made of is I think half of it. And I think also too, the sort of, if you will, the manifestation of they see it through and they have an understanding there's gonna be someone there on the other end. So just seeing that resilience, that grit, that fortitude um, help to shape things. And so that gives you a certain, you know, selection and, and lens into a founder. And, and you know, we have a saying in, in, at our firm, which is we're in the people business, right? We're not in the tech business. We're not in the startup, we're in the people business. We back exceptional founders. And a lot of those attributes are that they are exceptional people. When you are thinking about the founders that, you know, are these exceptional people, I can tell that you love seeing, you know, people that have, you know, different perspectives from life, whether it's where they grew up or the communities they're from or, or what have you. What are some of like the green flags? What are some of the traits or attributes you look for where you're sitting across from a founder and you think, they have what I'm looking for. What what are those traits? What are the things that you care most about? They're building this company. They're doing this because there's a purpose and a reason. They had a problem they couldn't solve in their current situation. They needed to step away from that and build a business. So we love a founder that's sitting inside of a large organization, can't get the tools, can't get the resources, can't get what they need to more efficiently do what they're doing. Or they see an area and a wedge that's an opportunity and they can't sleep until they they fix that and take advantage of that. What we tend to stay away from and where the big red flag is, is someone who's struggling to come up with an idea mm. and they kind of baked something up and they think this could be a good idea more from the standpoint of they want to do a startup, yeah. which is sort of a term, as I said earlier, we stay away from. Yeah. And they're out raising the money, but there's not this passion, there's not this burning desire to fix that problem and build a business around fixing and solving that problem. And now when it comes to the type of startup, you mentioned I, I, there's a um, a couple of categories or a couple of industries that that you really hone to. Is that is that accurate or do you guys invest in any type of startup? And it, it doesn't matter... B2B, B2C, is there any specific um, you know, industry or group of, of types of startups that you really like to focus on? Yeah, we're very intentional on this is we invest in, in, in three types of businesses and we feel that we have expertise in three categories. So we do B2B enterprise SaaS software. We do consumer and these are both tech enabled businesses and in those two categories. And then we do what we refer to as transformative infrastructure. So this would be things that are built on chain, that kind of next generation of protocol that is going to benefit from the attributes I alluded to earlier mm -hmm. around blockchain and whatever the different types of, uh, of businesses being built on that chain are. So those are our three, if you will, categories. Okay. We don't do anything in the pharma space. We don't do anything in the CPG space. We don't really look at healthcare, medical, certainly nothing if it's going to require any kind of license, FDA license or approval. Okay. Meaning that we have zero expertise. We have three areas that we think we know a little bit about and have deep networks within those areas. So on the B2B enterprise side, it's going to be in financial services and real estate prop tech. On the consumer side, it's in media. And when I say media, that is kind of broadly defined as infrastructure around that. It could be gaming company, it could be gaming infrastructure, but in some cases it could be the creation of IP. That IP could be in the podcast space like we did with Wandry, uh, which uh, was sold to Amazon Studios uh, two years ago in that. So again, 
we think we have a bit of expertise, a knowledge of the space, and large networks within that that can benefit our founders through introductions and navigating through those large, large corporate infrastructures to hopefully create a partnership, some sort of strategic alliance that could then benefit and propel the business. And then I'd say the fourth area that lies outside of that, but is integral, is we have a very large network within the venture ecosystem. So we know from the, the if you will, angels up to the series A, B, and C firms that are out there that um, founders are attracted to. And I mean, I think that it's so prevalent to your thesis because we were talking before the show about, you know, you both personally as well as your fund invest so much into bringing people together uh, through events, through, you know, panels, through in-person. Um, I wanted to ask you a bit more about, you know, what's your philosophy in bringing people together? I, I know we're just getting out of this lockdown where everyone's been inside. Um, you know, what's your general philosophy in these in-person events and in bringing people together? It's hard to quantify, but at the end of the day, it's how we meet new and interesting founders. It's a part of the, if you will, deal flow. And we branded this platform, ours, our marketing platform is the in the flow platform. Our events are referred to as in the flow. Our communication with the industry is referred to as in the flow. And it's in the flow of information, in the flow of opportunity and meeting people. I so, love that. Yeah, we've tried to you know create a few things. Uh, one is to help I think new people in the industry, younger people in the industry, the next generation of great venture investors. So for example, tomorrow night, we have our annual next gen investor dinner. It's 70 plus of the best and brightest up and coming investors recently made partner investors at everything from pre-seed up to series A, series B, series C funds. What's the reason behind it though? Because for someone like me, that's not in, in, in your game, I would be like, isn't that competitive? Aren't you bringing all these people that are trying to steal your deals from you? And so what, what's the philosophy in being so open in creating opportunity for people that aren't just at Water Tower? Like why, why open yourself up to so many other funds to come in? What, what's the- Well, I mean, remember we're a pre-seed fund. We're the first check that, are, that typically a founder is going to take. And, and, you know, our check, we will go as early as investing alongside mom and dad, I like to say, but it's, it's for certain the first institutional capital. And so, you know, our check size ranges anywhere from on the low side, 500,000 up to a million and a half dollars. So think on that average entry point, they're right around a million dollars mm -hmm. at the time. So a lot of the people that I just referenced, that's way too early for them. So a lot of our opportunity and our introduction and connection with talented founders that fit into our categories and our areas of, of expertise and investment come as a result of that. And again, remember too, our companies are going to eventually raise money from outside right. investors. So it's a you part become of more valuable to them even. Well, you hope, right? right. I, mean, they, I don't, but my companies, but the companies I get the right. opportunity to invest in and be a part of become very valuable to them in some cases. So it's also, you know, LA has been a little different. We, we invest in LA, the Bay Area, New York. Utah. Those are kind of our four geos, but we've got companies in Texas. We've got companies, you know, a around the country. And it's uh, it's been a very collaborative environment, at least in L.A. Um, there haven't been kind of the sharp elbows, if you will, mm. of maybe in other ecosystems that are out there. So it's been what we do. It's a part of the DNA. It's a part of building a brand. It's a part of Trying to do something, I think, quickly in, in a very short period of time, five years is not a great amount of time to build something and to build a business. I remember someone saying to me, it takes five years before you even have any idea that your business is working. And I think that's a very true statement. So we're kind of right on the cusp. We just celebrated our fifth year back in June in doing it. Um, we enjoy it and we think it's a part yeah. of the business. And if you look across the, the landscape, most of the successful venture funds have some program in place. And you know, we have a we have an angel program that we do, an angel network called the In the Flow Network that we do. And we host programming and events around that to bring that community together, which I think um, has not had a real sort of, if you will, catalyst to to create programming and create events around that. 
we work a lot, you know, across different types of opportunities like LA Tech Week and the opportunity event that we hosted at that. Now, something that I think you and I had mentioned too, you even have newer programs that you're building. I think you had talked about something around the lab. Uh, is that maybe maybe you can talk a little bit more about what that program is and you know why you decided to build something that could you know be a, a further extension of the Water Tower Ventures team. Yeah, I mean, I think we're trying to create a product, right? Like we we serve a customer that's a founder, and we've tried to build a product that we think serves that founder best. So part of that initial check and, and the, the product that we're building is it's not just the first check, but, you know, we have a viewpoint that fundraising is a massive distraction, right? So we would love to be that second check and, and, and give that founding team, that company, a little more runway to build, right? Because mm. the distraction that comes around with going out to, if you will, going through that traditional pre-seed to seed to series A can take up a lot of time. And Road a lot showing of up to Sam Fran. Hundred percent. Yeah. So let us extend that out. Let, let's maybe not focus on that distraction, right? And defocus from what we're supposed to be doing, which is building a world class business that's going to change the lives of lots of people, and extend this out and give ourselves a real shot. And so we've built that product so that we can go from writing the first check and up to writing and having as much as maybe three million, even more invested into a single company. Fascinating. And one thing that we saw is we would meet founders and they were really early in that journey. Um, ideation stage, just sort of beginning to think about what they wanted to build, but there was a reason they wanted to build it. And so we would step away and go, God, we want to be in business with this person but it's just way too early. And we didn't want that to slip away from us because mm -hmm. in, a, in a business and in an industry where you are just, you know, sort of constantly seeing new companies and shiny little diamonds over here and over here and distraction comes to us too. So you take your eye off of that special founder maybe. So we developed our In The Flow Lab and that is checks anywhere from 100,000 up to 250,000. They are very bespoke programs specific to that company and that founding team where we work hand in hand with them for three months to help them shape and define the business and think through it. And the hope at the end of that, and there's no exact you know, end date, if you will, is that we're writing them another check and they're taking on that really that first institutional capital at that time. And, um, and it's worked great. And so we're seeing a lot of um, incredibly talented people with uh, with big ideas, ambitious ideas that um, in some cases we think we can be helpful in their shaping of those. And now how does a startup or a founder find out about the lab? Is it through the website? Is it completely separate from your normal venture fund? It's on the website. It's a, it comes out of the fund. We'll do uh, anywhere from 10, maybe even 20 lab deals, uh, lab investments out of each fund. Wow. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about the events. Uh, you and I had the chance to meet each other formally at the LA Tech Week events, and I wanted to just get your thoughts. Like, how did you feel about LA Tech Week this year? Did it um, surpass expectations? Did you have any expectations? Like, uh, what was your point of view on maybe leading up to LA Tech Week? And then how did you feel afterwards about it? Yeah, super low expectations. Right. <laughs> uh, I think we'll start with that. No, did no interest in like you know kind of getting thrown, being thrown a loop in the middle of summer in August to uh, to host an event. That said, Katya from uh, A16Z has become a friend, and we wanted to be supportive. Um, I will say, albeit with a, an escape hatch built in, <laughs> in case this looked like it was going to go south, which I think a lot of people felt. And we we signed on and, and we developed, you know, we thought about some programming that we felt could be valuable. Mm -hmm. And that was the hosting of, a, of an LPGP event, um, which you obviously were at and I, I thought was amazing. It was so great. And um, I remember I went to the uh, to the baseball all-star game at Dodger Stadium with another venture investor here in town, Mark Mullen who runs oh, Bonfire Ventures. Also a guest on the show. Yeah, and uh, and, and, a, and a great friend, longtime friend, former banker, reformed bankers, we like to joke on that. And then Nick Kim from, at the time, Crosscut, now, yeah, yeah. Up, now up front. And they, you know, we had already committed at that time. And so this is, I believe it was July 19th. And so we're like four weeks out uh, from LA Tech Week. And they both said, oh my gosh, we have to do something. This has turned into a thing. And it, it did, it turned into a thing. It went from zero to a hundred overnight. And, um, 
I think there was still, still a lot of skepticism around, is, is this going to be something? And it just exceeded, you know, to right. answer your question specifically, exceed, I think it exceeded everyone's expectation. Incredible events. Um, I think it really brought the community together and sort of set the stage. Now, now Utah's doing a Utah Tech Week next month. Kind of San Fran, New York. They're using the same platform. We've connected them, the people that are kind of galvanizing that with Katya and the A16Z team to help them kind of navigate through that. And yeah. I think, I think Katya told us that uh, San Francisco Tech Week, they actually stole every everything <laughs> right off, just scraped their site. It was quite comical. But no, we're already signed up, you know, already on board for next year, which I believe is taking place in June. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was really great for LA. What was the highlight, either from your own event or just kind of in you know kind of in reminiscing was there any one particular moment that uh that resonated with you the most i think the the i, I think they called it the kickoff party uh -huh. the, the andreessen party on wednesday evening which i was gonna stop by for 10 minutes and then it was know, get so home, have, my, have my car arrive and, and go home and i left about three and a half hours after <laughs> it was just an incredible gathering of of people that you hadn't seen but you know people very relevant and very deeply ingrained in the venture ecosystem and you just got a chance to connect with people that maybe in some cases you hadn't for years because of everything that's gone on or they were new relationships that you know you uh, spent more time with so, yeah and then yeah, your, that was great. your event was on thursday right the we were thursday morning at the same venue yeah, at, the, yeah. at the bungalow and, and you got somehow got will sue on because absolutely know, such a legend stole the show i mean such a legend we, we had a we had two panels of legends dana settle and jim andelman and uh will Cofield Minnie and mini yeah, and, yeah. and it was a great group on the two panels and you know, one panel was the emerging manager. So those kind of on fund two, maybe even fund three, but, you know, early in their, in their fund journey. And the other panel was the emerged managers. And that consisted of Dana, who, you know, founded Graycroft 16 plus years ago and has billions of dollars under management and all. And, uh, and then of course, of course, Will uh, from Mucker. Yeah. And for those of you who know or don't know Will, he's a kind of a little res bit reserved. Oh, yeah. I think we're right above their offices yeah. right now. If Which I'm not is mistaken. crazy because I intern I was in Will's first class ever uh, back in 2012. And so to come a decade later, founding my business in the same building as him, uh, it's it's a really awesome story. They're, they're, they're amazing. Um, I've known Eric for a very long time. I didn't know Will uh, initially. It was my kind of relationship was more with Eric when they were first founding the firm. I then met Will. We did, hadn't spent a lot of time. My son actually interned for them for two summers. Uh, they're just two of the greatest humans. You yeah. know. I just They're great, great guys and wildly successful, right? But I didn't know that Will was so funny. <laughs> and I kind of thought I knew the story, the transition from Harrison Metal. Um, but I did not know that fund one was $500,000. It was a HELOC second on his house. <laughs> <laughs> and I just thought that was just incredible. And it took them, if I'm recalling correctly, three years to invest $500,000. Yeah. 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 They were, uh, they were very, uh, you know, very, it's, uh, an, un it's an unbelievable story. And, and we're fortunate to haven't co-invested in, in a number of transactions, a number of companies with uh, with the Mucker team. And it's amazing. He spends so much time with every company and Eric the same. You, you just think they have like 10 portfolio companies. I don't know. It's probably in the hundreds now. Yeah. Uh, and he's just always available and, and always getting deep into the product. And yeah, they're great. Again, passionate about what they do. So I have a story about Will and I'm curious your perspective on it. So the day that Honey announced their, you know, like their big acquisition, I ran downstairs and I was like, Will, like, dude, congratulations. Like, this is so cool. And in like Will fashion, he was like, oh, you know, thanks. I appreciate it. And I'm like, Will, you're not like excited. Like, this is amazing. And he's like, Sean, like, it's kind of like when you're playing baseball and you hit a home run and you get to feel yourself touch first base and then second base and then third base and then home. And it's very tangible. But in venture, he said, I had a coffee with these guys almost 10 years ago. And it there's such a long time to get that, that feedback loop. What's your POV on it? Does that affect you at all? Do you care? Do you do you um, you know, enjoy like that long marathon for such a, you know, a unique experience. Like what, what's that like for you for these long feedback loops? And do you feel the same way? That's why you're in this business. Mm. You're in this business to see people win. And when you 
when you write that first check and make that investment into a founder, into a team, into a business, that's the hope, right? I mean, we're all, the, we, we set out with it's going to be a public company and it's going to change the world. And we know that most of the time that's not the case, right? mm-hmm. unfortunately. But when it is, yeah, it's incredibly rewarding experience. And, and to watch that, that journey of the founder and, and watch how they change, hopefully in some areas don't change as a result of it. And it's just, it's incredibly refreshing watching. So Will and Eric specifically not change yeah. at all. Yeah. And, you know, this is, uh, I, th- I think there are many industries where they wouldn't have come and done that panel at wasn't it like nine in the morning or eight thirty? I mean, it was early. Yeah, and uh, in doing that, they're just as gracious and humble as ever. And I think that's that speaks to a lot of people in this business who have had a lot of success, who continue doing it, continue you know jumping out of bed to go and do this business when boy, they sure don't have to, and they've created so much wealth for well, themselves. But it, it's a it's a passion. It's a you know, it's part of their DNA. It's what they love doing and you don't stop doing it. Yeah. And, you know, just a humble brag for for you. I think it's a testament too of your philosophy around people, business and people first. You, you in my opinion, had the best panels, like just the quality of the guests and they were there because of you, you know, like uh, Will didn't do other uh, panels. He did your panel and you know, Dana and Jim and like people that have been in the game for so long. And it's just really cool that, you know, you've kind of set the foundation for long relationships, decades, you know, your first, uh, like, it's something that's following you with everywhere you go is like the people you've met along the journey have stayed with you for so long. Um, It's really incredible. You know, something I look up to a lot for sure. Um, I do have a couple last questions for you here. um, And that's around just the current fundraising environment. Uh, I had the chance to go to your CEO summit and you were talking a lot about the psychology of fundraising. And, you know, today with the way that the economy is, that founders need to be very intentional. They need to be very, um, move with with meaning, so to speak. And I, I wanted to ask, like, how do you feel or what advice do you have for founders that are struggling right now to get that valuation they were looking for? How can they think differently? Or um, what advice do you have for people that maybe are a little bit, you know, uh, the lens is, is kind of foggy because of what the last couple of years have been like. Do you have any thoughts on that? Oh yeah. <laughs> Lots of thoughts. And it's, you know, it's, and it's a conversation that we're having continually inside of our office, continually with founders, continually with, with existing portfolio companies uh, in all of that. Look, I think um, there's so, there's so much to unpack there in, in that question, just in general, mm-hmm. did we get way over our skis in, in 21? Absolutely. Did it feel exactly like 99 and 2000? Absolutely. Really? Maybe even a little bit more. Um, just so many, so many parallels from dot com to crypto, Bitcoin, um, NFT, all of these buzzwords that you had no sort of understanding of what was really going to go on there and all that. So it's in a way for us, it's um, it's refreshing to see kind of, if you will, a little bit of air get let out of the system in all of this. Um, We're having very frank conversations with founders, but we're having conversations like this is kind of the way the business is supposed to look. You don't raise your A with really no revenue at a $100 million valuation. Like we just never saw that yet. When a, a company would go on to raise a series A at a $70 million valuation, you were disappointed. Because it didn't get that hundred, so you know, coming back to the way that the business gets built, real KPIs, real metrics, things that are going to show sustainability and solving that problem, we're, we're, it's refreshing to see that come back. It is tough mm. out there. I am having multiple conversations a day with founders, with investors, pre-seed, angel, Series A, Series C, late-stage investors. Um, all the likes. People aren't putting money out. I have not talked to anyone, two people, that's not true, two people who did more than one new investment last quarter. Now, it's not a universal, but I'm Mm -hmm. just saying the pace has slowed dramatically. It slowed for us. It's not because we wanted it to slow. We we are trying to, to deploy capital and back great founders, building amazing companies, in all this. And we typically make a new investment every month. So think 12, maybe even up to 15 new investments per year. So that's our typical pacing. Q2, we made one new investment. 
I think it's 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 speaking to where the market is right now. I think a lot of a lot of investors had work to do with their existing portfolio, which maybe took their their energy and their effort off of making new investments mm-hmm, away mm-hmm. for a while. I think we'll see that come back. Certainly, valuations have reset. That's that, that's no newsflash that's there. But I think it's back to where valuations are supposed to be. They yeah, are supposed to be in that area. We're building something right now. We're calling it the mechanics of capitalization. And it's an illustrative sort of document that will show what it looks like to capitalize a business with maybe a couple of smaller checks that allow you to run and build that business for an extended period of time versus what we've maybe seen recently is the the, the jump from the pre-seed to the seed. Raise to the a, a monster. To the, out, yeah. And just constantly these 12 month cycles. I, I struggled. I really struggled to understand how a venture fund could be back in market in 12 months and raising on a 12 to 18 month cycle. Capital can scale, talented, incredible founders, I don't believe can scale. And I think that they are a finite number of special people who are gonna build businesses that change the way the world works. And that unfortunately doesn't scale with the capital. And I think that we're going to see that now. Is there any one person in your life? It could be a professor. It could be parents. It could be family. It could be friends. Like, is there any one person that has had a remarkable impact that you want to take, you know, 20 seconds or 10 seconds today just to give a special shout out to and anyone that's had a, just a remarkable impact on your life? Yeah, there's been two outside of immediate family mm-hmm. and, and that um, a dear friend of mine, Michael Casson, who ran a company called Media Link, which was uh, recently acquired for the second time by UTA, who's been a, just, a, just a dear friend and trusted advisor where uh, one can be vulnerable and, and get the right feedback and not get judged for 20 plus years. He's my son's godfather and just been an incredible friend. And the other is, uh, is I, a gentleman I referenced earlier in, the, in our uh, talk here today, um, Kevin Mayer, who kind of was the one who pushed me out, uh, out of, a, I, uh, of an area where I was so comfortable that I wasn't to go do something that was, uh, I think, brewing for a very, very long time and something I wanted to do. And got me out of that comfort zone and uh, into something that uh, that I just love doing. Derek, I uh, I'm so thankful for you coming across town to be a part of Demo Day, and uh, I'm just very thankful that we get to spend more time together. Um, what are you most excited about for the next year? You know, end of this year into next year could be business, could be professional, could be personal. Uh, what are you most excited about for the next year? I sort of echo the sentiments of of Bill Gurley and his recent musings about this being the third greatest opportunity that he's seen. The first at the end of the you know post dot com crash, the second after the financial crash, and now he's saying this as being the third. This is where the innovation comes in. This is where the real founders come back out. And I'm just incredibly excited for the, I guess, second half of this current fund that we're investing out of and raising our next fund. So I think 23 is going to be a a big year. I think we're going to see a lot of great companies get formed in 23 and 24 that we will look back on 10 years from now as having changed industries and having changed the way people work and how they live and how they play. Derek, uh, this was a killer episode. Thank you for everything. Uh, For everyone listening at home, I'm Sean Goldfaden from Coefficient Labs, and this is Demo Day. Peace, guys. (laughs) 